campers. I'm sitting up here in the Treehouse studio a few hours after Memorial Day. Over the weekend, I spent time thinking about the men and women that served and are serving our country. I know that all of our hearts go out to these Americans and their families that have sacrificed so much so that we can live in a free land. Thank you. Our guest this week is Eric Nadell. You know him as the award-winning Texas Ranger baseball announcer. In this interview, we explore his significant love and support in the Dallas music scene. One interesting point is that when Eric first came to Dallas in the 70s, his first announcer job was for the Dallas Blackhawks hockey team. All right, hockey is a weird diversion to bring up, but hang with me. The Vegas Golden Knights' success in hockey has developed into one heck of a human interest story. The Knights are in the Stanley Cup Finals. They won the first game last night, as a matter of fact. Here are a couple fascinating points. Number one, the Knights are a first-year team that is made up of discarded players and coaches. The experts gave them no chance of being successful. Number two, back on October 1st, just days before the hockey season kicked off, the horrible Las Vegas concert shooting occurred, leaving 58 people dead and 851 injured. The Knights players and executives immediately reached out to the Las Vegas community in this time of loss and have become a rallying point for the city. In memory of the people lost and hurt, I believe this is a good story to follow. Super announcement time. Rabbit Hat Marketing, led by Maureen Womack, is now the Dogger and Muddy Music, i.e. Damn Show, marketing advisor. Maureen, your advice and counsel on the Damn Show is invaluable. Thank you for being a part of the team. All right, as Bruce Willis once said, yippee ki let's get the show underway. <laughs> oh, maybe that's not quite what he said, but ah, oh, the heck with it. Amy, can you get the show rolling? Muddy and I are ready to talk with Eric Nadell. This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? Hey, campers. Muddy, my Chocolate Lab partner, and I are sitting here with Eric Nadell, award-winning Texas Ranger baseball announcer. When listening to games, thousands of fans turn down the TV sound and listen to Eric on, on the uh, fan, 105.3 on your dial. He's also up on uh, Major League Baseball, MLB.com, and also on Sirius XM. In fact, Muddy asked for his own headphones when listening to a game. <laughs> Eric just made good friends with Muddy. I think Muddy's going to try and climb in uh, Eric's car when he heads to the game here in a second. Eric has many loves and interests outside of baseball. One is, is he is a huge lover of music. During the week, um, he's a guest on multiple radio shows around the Metroplex. My favorite discussion point is when the host asks Eric for updates and stories on the local music scene. He's a real spokesman for the DFW music world. Eric, my focus and top love is music, So, be, but before we focus on that, you grew up in Brooklyn when Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris were key faces in Major League Baseball. Is that where your love for baseball started? It actually started a little bit earlier. Um, the year that I turned six, 1957, was the last year the Brooklyn Dodgers played in Brooklyn. And my father took me to four games that year. That's I had cool. my own little Brooklyn Dodgers uniform right? and fell in love with baseball. I saw Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Frank Robinson, Ernie Banks, all in that first year. Yeah. And then at the end of that season, the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. 
And broke the hearts of everybody in Brooklyn. Absolutely. My parents, they, they lost their interest in baseball at that time, but I had just fallen in love with it. Uh, we still had the Yankees, but I'd already been taught to hate the Yankees. They were always beating the Dodgers in oh, the World Series back okay. then. All right. So yes, we, they were. But that was all we had, so I made my father take me to Yankee games, and I had uncles take me and friends take me until I was old enough to go myself on the subway, which was when I was 13. But when Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle were going after the home run record in 1961, right. I was 10, and that's the first year that I can remember religiously listening to every game and yes. putting a transistor radio underneath the pillow at night. Yeah. I'm, I'm from the Midwest, and Roger Maris was from North Dakota. So right. he was – Mick was amazing. I remember going to a Minnesota Twins game, and – running down in between innings and trying to get a picture of him coming into the dugout. I just, and many times the brownie, the pictures that I took in the brownie star might were shaking, you know, were <laughs> all shaken. But, but so you probably listened to Phil Rizzuto in New York. It was Mel Allen and Red Barber and Phil Rizzuto and Jerry Coleman, who went on to be the voice of the San Diego Padres for a long time. Ah. He had also played uh, infield for the Yankees. Yeah. So there was... Walter Austin was the coach of the Brooklyn Dodgers, right? Walter Austin was the manager, and then they moved to Los Angeles. And, and then Duke Snyder. Uh, yeah, they Duke Snyder. Gil Hodges lived around the corner from us. I went to school oh, with awesome. went to school with Gil Hodges' son. Yeah. And in fact, I, I quit the high school baseball team because I was going to be the backup first baseman to Gil Hodges Jr. I didn't anticipate playing a whole lot, I so I I went off looking for other pursuits. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you joined the Texas Rangers in 1979, and Eric, you've been on an amazing ride with this organization. Uh, the awards that you've won include the Texas Baseball Hall of Fame. You've received the Texas Sportscaster of the Year Award seven times by the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers, 15th member of the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame. But I believe the big one, unless you correct me, is the big one is the Ford C. Frick Award that you received in 2014 presented uh, at the Na- National Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, anything to say about those awesome awards? Well, the, what it's meant to you and your well, family? Well, the, the Cooperstown thing is like it's you know that's the epitome of what somebody in my business can can uh, reach. Uh, and to me, it seemed kind of surreal to go to Cooperstown on the same weekend that Frank Thomas and Tom Glavin and <sighs> Greg Maddox were being inducted into the Hall of Fame, and and being in their company, staying in the same hotel with them, and only Hall of Famers. And like A-list celebrities are allowed to stay in this hotel that weekend. Tom Brokaw was there. Billy Crystal was there. Awesome. Um, I go out to the maid's cart, you know, and Whitey Ford is, you know, taking towels off the maid's cart, you know. <laughs> just crazy it's stuff. It's even tough in good hotels for people crazy to get taken like care that. of. stuff like that. Jim you know? Bunning is at the Coke machine, you know. It was like I had sneaked into some <laughs> private club and got away with it. I like that. spent the whole weekend in there. That is so cool. That is so cool. I know some of my some of our the people listening in are going to want to stay on baseball, but I want to jump onto music. So, where did your love for music begin? Um, I attribute it mostly to my sister, who's three years older, who started bringing records home. Uh, sometime in the mid to late fifties, she brought home an Elvis Presley seventy eight. Elvis that had Hound Dog on one side and Don't Be Cruel on the other. Okay, and I was hooked. That was it with that one record. Yeah. And I, then I remember her bringing back um, Jailhouse Rock yeah. and Heartbreak Hotel. And then she expanded to, you know, to other uh, musicians as well. She had a pretty wide range of tastes. She also then, um, in the early 60s, uh, became a young beatnik 
and spent a lot of time in Greenwich Village listening to people like Bob Dylan Ooh. and Joan Baez and Dave Van Ronk and Pete Seeger and bringing home their records. And she didn't bring you along? So I, I wasn't allowed to go. <laughs> I got to listen to the records, though. Yeah. And then, of course, when the Beatles came to the U.S., we were all just completely feverish over that. I think I was 14 that year. And uh, it's been, been one after another, but she was really responsible for getting me into it. Well, I think I remember it when they came for Ed Sullivan in New York. Mm-hmm. The streets of New York were just, like, insane. That was it. And you know, back then, too, I was really into... Um, it was AM radio then, Top 40 radio. Right. We had WABC in New York with Dan Ingram and uh, Cousin Brucie. Uh, we had Murray the K, legendary yes, disc yes. jockey. And he did a Christmas show every year at the Brooklyn Fox Theater. And I got to go to that show. And I remember seeing you know, Sam and Dave and the Four Tops and Hannibal and the Headhunters and uh, yeah. you know, a bunch of groups back then. Probably the first concert that I ever went to was one of those Christmas shows. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Muddy just decided that he wanted to be closer to Eric because Eric has made great friends. So Muddy is we're best pals. <laughs> Muddy is under the table now mm-hmm. with his head mm-hmm. in Eric's lap. Yes, so. <laughs> so New York, the music scene. As you got old enough to start going to events and stuff, can you explain the music scene in New York at that time? Frame? Well, at that time again, and I was oriented toward Greenwich Village and the folk scene, which is what my sister kind of got me into. I was especially fond of a band called Jim Queskin and the Jug Band. They were from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I remember the first time I actually was able to go to a show, it was an all-ages show with with no alcohol, Uh, was at a place called uh, Cafe Agogo on Bleecker Street. And uh, Jim Queskin had in his band, he had uh, Maria Moldauer, was the female singer in his band. And uh, just a a really fun, um, well, classic jug band. Right. And I I love them. And all sorts of derivations of folk back then. I remember seeing Phil Oaks in in one of those clubs back then. I never actually saw Dylan. He was around a little bit. Right, right. Um, But that's really what I was into. Richie Havens. Uh, oh, that's Got cool. a chance to see. And then when I went off to college in 1968, then my tastes kind of expanded a little bit more, listening to college radio and being right. exposed a little more to uh, what they called progressive rock back right. then. Brown University, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we had a really good college radio station, which was one of the main reasons I went there. So did you get involved with the radio station? Yeah, immediately. I had actually already done a summer of radio in Hope, Arkansas, as a fill-in disc jockey. How the heck did you get a gig in Hope, Arkansas? It was a totally bizarre situation. I went to a program after my junior year in high school at Northwestern in Chicago for high school kids interested in radio. And my roommate there was from Hope, Arkansas. And he called me the following April, and he said, would you be willing to come down this summer and work at our local radio station? And I said, well, I thought that's what, what you were going to do. That's why you went to the program at Northwestern. He said, yeah, but I'm sacking groceries at the A&P, and I'm making three <laughs> times as much money. And I want to so keep... So come down and help me. Come so down. I want to keep that job, and I can't keep that job if I take the radio station job. So I told him, what if I got you someone capable of doing it? Oh, that's Someone cool. who's similarly trained. And so I... And I was from Brooklyn. I was talking like this. Yeah, oh, okay, all right. And so I get hired to go down to Hope, Arkansas and talk on the radio. And everybody's loving you, right? it was the first day there, I had to read a farm report. I was the only person at the station, because I had signed the station on the air. Oh, um, 
and I'm there by myself, and I just have to rip off this AP ticker about, you know, I'm giving prices of hogs. And, <laughs> and then I got to the word, I got to the word heifer. Yeah. Uh-oh. I didn't Uh-oh. have the slightest idea how to say that. <laughs> and, I, and I had the New York accent where I wasn't saying the R's at the end of the word. And I believe I pronounced it hypha. <laughs> A lot of hyphas I gave the price of hyphas, (laughs) and I saw the phone immediately light up. There were five lines. Oh, boy. I wasn't touching that thing. (laughs) And then the next disc jockey who came in, you know, helped me out a little bit with my pronunciation. Did you get to a second day at at Hope? Yeah, actually, they were stuck with me. They needed me bad. So I I, I worked six weeks there, but then when when I got to Brown, I already had, quote, professional radio experience i knew how to run a control board i knew how to spin records and which is big and talk up to the time the the vocal started and all that stuff you did in radio back then and so i immediately got to do anything i wanted but i was mostly interested in sports i did a dj shift found out i wasn't very good at it um, but found out i was pretty good at doing play-by-play and learned from there weren't any classes at Brown in journalism or broadcasting. You learned from the upperclassmen at the radio station. And they okay. taught me how to do play-by-play. And we did um, football and hockey. There, Those were the two sports that I sure. did play-by-play of in college. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and just a quick step back, Hope, Arkansas is pretty big. Uh, historically, that's a big place yeah, in we didn't, history. Yeah, we didn't know any Clintons or Huckabees back yeah, then. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah um, politically, yes. But it was, it was a great experience for me. You know, I was from New York City. I'd never lived anywhere else. And now I'm living with a farm family in Hope, Arkansas, living with my friend and his family and learning how to, you know, shut corn and... Uh, Milk cows. Oh, you did milk I cows. I did all, did all that stuff. And uh, it, was, it was a great experience. They were warm and loving and very different from the way people in New York are. It was a tremendous experience for me. That is so cool. But in the background, you kept a love for music. Yeah, I mean, back there, I knew nothing about country music. And that yeah. was the first time I was in any way exposed to it. The number one song that summer was Buck Owens' I uh, Got a Tiger by the Tail. Yes. And I became very familiar with Glenn Campbell because he, he was from Delight, Arkansas, which is True. about 15 miles away. And we had to play a Glenn Campbell song every hour. That was okay. part of the playlist of the station. But we were playing a lot of George Jones and Hank Williams, sure. uh, very traditional country stuff that I knew nothing about before I went down there. So it was, it was nice exposure. And I also remember go, driving to Shreveport. Oh, I, I didn't drive, but was driven to Shreveport <laughs> to see the Box Tops perform in concert yes. at the Shreveport Municipal Auditorium. They had the hit song, The Letter, yeah. back then. And that was, uh, that was the first time I'd seen a concert outside of New York. Wow. Weird side note on Glenn Campbell. The, uh, he came back to Arkansas probably to receive multiple awards all the time. So one time he comes back, for, my, my wife, her family's from Northwest Arkansas. So this guy designs some cowboy boots, Arkansas hog cowboy boots on Glenn's size. They aren't the most beautiful things in the history of mankind. So they were offered to Glenn, and Glenn said, you know, I think I'll pass on that. And uh, they ended up, my father-in-law had the same size feet. So it's whenever our kids and grandkids got together, they would all put on the boots and go tramping around the house. That's great. (laughs) So now you come down to Dallas-Fort Worth. And before you get here, you've had an introduction to music, to country music. But we're good with blues, and now we're good with Americana. Did you have time initially after you got here in 79 to start getting into the music scene, or did that take a while? Yeah, I actually got here in 76 to do minor league hockey. 
Oh, and I was the Dallas the Dallas, Dallas Blackhawks. Blackhawks. Oh, I love the Dallas Blackhawks. I did two years of the Dallas Blackhawks, and the Texas Rangers hired me based on the way I did hockey games and a four game audition. Um, so in '76, I moved down here. I didn't really know a whole lot of people here, but I did have a cousin here, and she started taking me out with her when she'd go out at night, and we would go to Whiskey River over yeah. on Greenville Avenue, yeah. and you know we saw Willie play there a couple of times, and you know, oh wow. Uh, David Allen Coe and all the other guys with three names. They were all they were all playing there. <laughs> yes. And and it was great. There was also there was a band that played there all the time that I loved that was from Arkansas called Zorro and the Blue Footballs. I heard of them. They played there a lot. And then there are other bands, uh, you know, along Greenville Avenue. We'd go to the old Poor Davids. And yes. I remember seeing Jim Suler and Monkey Beat and yeah. Anson Funderburk and, and guys like that. I'm interviewing Jim Suler next week. Fantastic. He's playing at Cafe Momentum for me on Sunday. Oh, I at love the it. the dinner concert series I do there. I just saw him play with Thurgood in Toronto a couple of weeks ago. Oh, you ago. were up at, Oh, that's right. Yeah, they we, were there. We got lucky. We saw him at Massey Hall, yeah. which is now my favorite concert venue anywhere. Oh, really? It was just spectacular. It's really small. It's like an opera house with three overhanging balconies. Oh, that's cool. And to see George Thorogood in there and to see my buddy Jim playing in there, it was, it was really a thrill. That is so cool. That is great. You triggered a fond memory of mine. Now, let's go back to the Dallas Blackhawks for a second. Maybe you can confirm this to me. When I went to the games, there was this lady of age with a, what I would call a hun-in-the-bun hairdo up over her head. And she had a fishing pole with a rubber chicken on it. <laughs> yeah. And it seemed to me that the Blackhawks, when they wanted to maybe send a message to somebody, they do it over around her. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't think they orchestrated it that way, but it probably turned out that way a number of times. Yeah. Yeah, the rubber chicken was still there the, the two years I was there. I was there 76, 77, and 77, 78. Yeah, and I remember specifically two guys are duking it out, and in between their faces as they're punching each other, this this sweet old lady is dropping a rubber chicken via this fishing pole right between their faces, and I'm sure the tra- the uh, away team is going, "What the heck is yeah, hell is that, going that, on?" That wouldn't have been the worst thing that happened to road teams in in minor league hockey. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. That's true. Anybody who's seen the movie Slapshot can probably identify with that. And if you haven't seen it, see it oh, with Paul Newman. It's absolutely. about the lowest levels of minor league hockey. It's oh, hilarious that, that and true. Me, that to me is definitely one of the top five classic sports movies you need yeah. to see. I love that one. What do you think of the Dallas music scene right now? I think it's phenomenal. Um, you know, in 1999, my wife and I bought a house in Austin so we could spend time sure. in the off season um, going to see live music and listening to KUT and to KGSR at that time. We didn't have a radio station like that here. And we didn't have all the venues that we have right now. We didn't have the assortment of music, the the different genres of music uh, available all the time. Now we do. I tell people all the time, we sold our house in Austin three years ago. I think the music scene in Dallas now is as good or better than in Austin. I think we have better venues. We have incredible local talent. And when you include Fort Worth, um, you know, I, I really think it's better. And it's, it's so phenomenal. I'm proud of this area. And you've got a local radio station in KXT that's yep. playing local music. Yep, big time. Um, I which love, is, that's, that is the radio station I listen to, you know, basically. It's enabling period. people to hear the local bands and then decide you know, who they want to go out and see. And it's, it's just great. It's, it's paradise for me. Yeah. I also uh, got to give a plug to KNON. I listen to them a fair mm-hmm. amount, too. Two, yeah, me two too. great radio stations. And I said, you know, where else are you going to hear blues on the radio other than KNON? Right. You know, even KXT really doesn't play very much out, 
Yeah. And, and your reference to uh, the music scene here versus Austin, I've, I've heard from in talks with different artists out of Austin that they think the Dallas scene is fantastic. And now we've opened, I think, in less than 12 months, two or three new venues, I think. Yeah, well, you got Big Beat Dallas right. out at, uh, in Las Colinas, Lava Cantina. Yeah. Um, they, just, they just keep coming, which is great. And, you know, for my money, we have the best venue in the country, in the Kessler, of that size. Thank There's you. There's no place that has a 400-seat venue. And I go to them in every city I go to. I actually had Marsha Ball a few years ago make me a list of the places ooh, ooh. that to her are comparable to the Kessler. Because yes. I know how much she loves playing at the Kessler. And I've been to almost all those venues now, and none of them compare to the Kessler in terms of the acoustics and how comfortable it is and how close you are to the performer. I'd love to get that list from you. I've got it somewhere. Yeah, I'd love to get that. And then, well, Jeff Lyles, the guy who runs Mm -hmm. the Kessler, he did the Roxy for a while. So have you been to the Roxy? I I was at the Roxy in L.A. a few years ago. Um, I got to see Michael Kiwanuka there. Okay. And that's the only time I've ever been there, but uh, not while Jeff was there. I'm four minutes from the Kessler right here. And so when Wendy decides to crash early in the evening, I jump in the car and head over to the Kessler. I spend a lot of time over there, too. Yeah, Yeah, it's just great. It's just great. I heard you had a cool job today for a while. Can you, can you <laughs> yeah, take us was, through I that? Yeah, I was actually a guest disc jockey on KXT today. They were in their membership drive and asked me if I would come in and do an hour of songs about baseball. About baseball? About baseball. So I did a lot of research. I have a lot of musician friends who are into baseball. I asked them what their favorite songs were about baseball. Became aware of some I didn't know about. I wasn't aware that Dylan had written a song about Catfish Hunter. Warren Zevon wrote a song about Bill Lee. I can see um, Warren Zevon doing Benjamin like that. Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie wrote a song about Ichiro. And there were a lot of great songs I remember from the 50s about Willie Mays sure. and Jackie Robinson and Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. And we got to play some of those. Um, there's a band called The Baseball Project, which is a super group made up of members of R.E.M. and the Dream Syndicate and a couple of other bands. They have three albums of songs just about baseball. And, you know, we picked a, picked a song off of there. Eddie Vedder has songs about the Cubs. Um, I wound up with about three hours of music, and we had to, had to cut it down to an hour, which was actually pretty frustrating. But it was, it was a lot of fun to do it, and they, they raised a lot of money that hour, which is the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, the research is kind of big part of the fun isn't it it sure was yeah and listening to those songs and and then actually making the cuts was was really really tough and you know there were a lot of songs that have baseball imagery in them that really aren't about baseball they're generally about love and relationships and sex and you know you could do a whole hour just playing those we played one of them we played one by a group called the trineers i think called love is like a baseball game and we oh. played that one. But we didn't play, the Gin Blossoms have one called Let's Play Two, which is definitely not about baseball. <laughs> but there are a few other songs like that that you know, I'd like to get a chance to play also sometime. Yes, I, it's always sliding into second base with something people were supposed to is. think about. Yeah, at certain times, yes. Okay. After a game at night, you're, you're, you've got to chill out for a while. Mm-hmm. When, number one, when do you get home? And two, do you listen to music when you're trying to bring that adrenaline back down? Yeah, I do. You know, our games end usually between 10.15 and 10.30. I leave the park at around 11. I put on KXT. Usually World Cafe is on at that time. And I love that show. Yeah, I love that show, whatever they're playing. And then when, when World Cafe is over, Undercurrents comes on, which is also fantastic. And I just listen to that on my way home. When I'm on the road... 
I'll sometimes listen to it. I've got the KXT app on my phone. Or I might listen to, if I'm in Seattle, I'll, I'll listen to their public radio station, KEXP. Um, or sometimes I'll just go to Spotify and listen to something. I, all my friends know that if they hear a band they like, send it to me. I want to listen to it. So almost every day somebody sends me a new band to listen to. And I do a lot of that after games, too. I get back to the hotel room and either put on headphones or, or put on my Bose speaker and you know, check out some new music till I get tired. That is awesome. So when do you finally crash, typically? Usually about 1 o'clock, generally. I okay, generally, that's not too bad. I generally try and sleep from 1 to 9. That's, during the season, that's pretty much my, my general modus operandi. It all gets screwed up when you have a day game. And that generally does happen every Sunday and sometimes other days, too. And then we're completely out of sync. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a heck of a record CD collection? or uh, I used to. I had, a, I had a lot of records that I still have that I don't play anymore. I don't, I'm too lazy to do a turntable. I've got a lot of CDs. I've got hundreds of CDs. In fact, when we redid our house 10 years ago, I had a custom cabinet built to store CDs. Right. And, you know, I wind up not going there that much because everything is so available on the phone and you can plug the phone in through the house system. And I don't, I don't go to the CDs all that much anymore. And I, and I hardly buy them other than it shows where I want to support the artist. So right. I'm going to buy something from them. And sometimes it's a T-shirt, sometimes it's a CD. Right. I don't think you'll make it tomorrow night, but I'll, or not, not tomorrow night. Yeah, it is tomorrow night. John Pettigo's opening at the... For the Kelly Ke- Willis. Yeah, at the Kessler. We have a three o'clock game. This oh, is, so you may make it. Might make it. It's negotiable with my wife. We'll see. It's <laughs> going to be a game time decision. That would certainly be my choice. So you're in the Austin scene for a while. As you come, when you come down here, you've already got an appreciation for country. A group of peop, musicians that I love are Guy Clark, Rodney Crowell, Steve Earle. Mm-hmm. Guys passed, but have you had a chance to see those guys and your thoughts on the I art? actually saw, saw all those guys in Dallas at um, Nick's Uptown or Poor David's Pub, two places on Greenville Avenue back in the 80s, right. uh, and had a chance to see them. Um, and definitely got introduced to, to all of that style of music, the Texas country music. Yeah. And um, Jimmy LaFave was my favorite of all the oh, Austin yeah, yeah, musicians. Yeah. And he and I became really good friends. Our dogs used to play together when I had the house in Austin. Yeah. And, you know, tragically, we lost him this year. But yeah, um, right. he introduced me to a bunch of other, you know, Austin musicians and, and their music. Yeah, he, he was great. Uh, goodbye concert for him was really, mm-hmm. really beautifully done. And he sang a song. He got up there and sang a song. Yeah, and I had just I had seen him two weeks earlier. He had done a private show here in Dallas for his last Dallas yeah. show. And I got a chance to talk to him that night and, and see that show. And um, he's uh, I really miss him. He's, he was That's a good cool. friend and an incredible guy. Yeah, he wrote great lyrics. And I mean, speaking of lyrics, I mean, to me, well, all those guys we just mentioned from the Texas countryside are, are great. Guy Clark, to me, is unbelievable. But I really think John Pettigo, this last album he's done, mm-hmm. uh, Pettigo's Magic Pilsner, I think the lyrics on that are really, really yeah, good. Yeah, he's a very clever guy. And, you know, and I love that. Um, I think of the guys who I've seen the most, and probably Bob Schneider would fit into that category, Robert Earl Keane. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Both guys who are really, you know, write really funny lyrics. Yes. And definitely worth listening to. Yeah. It, it's hard for artists, for, for cover bands to play Robert Earl Keane songs because <laughs> the words are never yeah. the same anywhere through the song. I mean, he, does, he doesn't have choruses, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, he, we had him on the air a few years ago, and he explained it so well. He says, I play country music for people who don't like country music. <laughs> 
I got, it was really they reprinted that uh, Live Two album recently, uh-huh. and I got it. So I mean, it's it's one of my new gems. I mean, that to me is yeah. one of. Re- he, he's a big baseball fan. Unfortunately, he roots for the Astros. Oh, we'll have to work on that. Well, he should. He's from Houston. Oh, okay. All right, we'll let him get away with it. Five Hundred Eight Park down in downtown Dallas, where Robert Johnson and um, Bob Wills recorded back in the thirties. Have you been there yet? I haven't been there. I know about it, and uh, haven't been there. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to Pat Bywaters and see if we can line up a time for you to drop by. It's pretty fascinating. Great. Yeah, they've got an outdoor amphitheater where the acoustic, acoustics are fascinating. They're rebuilding. They haven't really started rebuilding the inside of it, but it's having been in there. It's pretty cool to stand there and go. We're pretty sure that Robert Johnson sat there, and uh-huh. Bob, Bob Will sat here. I mean, that's that's sensational. Yeah, that's really cool. An interesting side note is you learn Spanish early on uh, after joining the Texas Rangers, and uh, I want you to take us through why and how that's benefited you within the music world. But it's also led to uh, some relationship for you down in Cuba. Yeah. I actually didn't learn it as fast as I should have. Um, It took me 12 years to get off my butt and actually start taking Spanish lessons in 1991. Ruben Sierra was our star player then, and we couldn't talk to him without a translator. And that was really the motivation for me to start learning Spanish. And now 20-whatever-it-is years later, I wouldn't say I'm fluent, but I'm close enough that, you know, I can have conversations with the players when we get a player who doesn't speak much English, I can talk to him in Spanish. I've also made a point of going to all the Latin American countries where baseball is played so I can talk to the players about their home country and they, they realize that I understand the, That's cool. you know, what they've been through. And then I, you know, a couple of times uh, I went down to Cuba to cover baseball tournaments down there, ah. made some friends there, and you know, have been able to go back there a number of times. Um, sometimes as a journalist for a while it was legal to go as a tourist now it's not but you can still go to do professional research you know which I do because their baseball there is so important and they send so many players now to the major leagues but I also got the idea in order to help people go to Cuba um, to do educational tours which are legal under our law and I started doing them with baseball as the theme But unfortunately, the Cubans changed their schedule on a moment's notice. They move games. They move games from the daytime to the nighttime. They don't have to worry about season ticket holders and TV rights holders. The government owns everything. So the tour companies finally said, we got to back off these baseball trips because the itinerary gets wrecked every day. And I had several musicians, most notably Rhett Miller, bugging me to take them to Cuba. And I said, well, what if I could get you a gig playing in Cuba? You can't make any money. You're not allowed to make any money. He said, I'd gladly go. So I got Rhett Miller and another amazing musician named Daphne Willis, who I work with a lot. And I took them to Cuba three years ago. They played in this unbelievable nightclub called the Fabrica di Arte, which is the number one place in Havana these days. 400 people. And did a couple of shows down there. And we took 40 of their fans who paid to go along on the trip. And it was great. I did another trip. Uh, the following year with Ruthie Foster and Seth Walker. And I think we had 25 of their fans. Unfortunately, Fidel Castro died right before we got there, and music was banned for 10 days as part of the... I remember that. As part of the what I call the Festival of Grief. And (laughs) so they didn't get to play their shows. The shows got canceled. So we basically had what amounted to a tourist trip to Cuba. And on the last day, we were allowed to have some private concerts. Um, but Ruthie and Seth this year both asked me for a do-over. 
So I, would, I, would, I can so understand. So we're doing it again next February. In fact, the, the trip's going to go on sale next week. I'm with a tour company called Cuba Educational Travel. Yeah. And in February, I'll take them both back, and they'll get to play their shows. And whichever their fans want to go, um, come on along. That's cool. Rhett Miller is famous for his old 97s as well as his individual work. So you, you brought some great artists down there. But, and, you know, going down there, one of the reasons I keep going is the people there are so poor. Um, the average salary is $20 a month. A month. A month. Uh, the government gives people enough food so they don't starve. Oh, so the tw- wow. So they're covered on food. And- well, they're covered on rice and beans wow. and one roll a day and a few eggs a month. If they want anything else, if they want fruits, vegetables, meat, fish. That's where the $20 goes. Yeah. Now, what about clothes? Could, nobody's, could help. Nobody's giving them clothes. Right. So I, I've gone back there, you know, a number of times to bring things to the friends that I've made there. Um, the guy who does the same thing I do in Havana, he's the baseball announcer for the Havana team in the Cuban Major League, yeah. makes $20 a month. God, and all these other people I know who are in the same business as me, um, they need everything for their families. So when I go down there, you know, I, I usually will email them and, you know, get a request list on what's most important to them and, you know, bring down whether it's peanut butter or shoes or vitamins yeah, or yeah. Uh, often it's prescription glasses. You know, they have free medical care. All that means is they can see a doctor. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they can get the medicine or the glasses. Uh, they have months and months of waiting. So, you know, by going down there, you know, you can help out. And now I've hooked up with this organization, Proclaim Cuba, right. based in Fort Worth, which is doing incredible work bringing down sports equipment and medical equipment, you know, in, in big quantities to Cuba. And, you know, I'm blown away by the work that they do. Yeah, it was real funny. Uh, two weeks ago, right after Maureen lined up this awesome interview with you, Maureen Womack, with Rabbit Hat Marketing. I, I was wanted to put another adjective before there, but it's Rabbit Hat Marketing. She is my marketing guru. But right after she lined up our visit, uh, I met, I played golf with Carly Alamino and Eddie Marshall, who are involved exactly in that Proclaim Cuba. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And they don't work out of Havana. They work out of a smaller city, Cienfuegos, okay. which is in the middle of the country. And I've been there, but don't have nearly as much experience in that part of the country as I do around Havana. Um, They've got some pretty good music there, too, by the way. They have every genre of music there. People think of Cuba, they think, well, it's salsa and cha-cha and stuff like that. They've got indie rock. They've got folk. They've got a lot of jazz. They've got blues. Everything that we have, they have in addition to all the Hispanic sounds that are so wonderful down there. But during different times, the Cuban government shuts down the music at different points in time, right? At different points in time. They've actually been very good over the last few good, years. Good. Um, some of these artists even have uh, lyrics that are we would consider to be dissident, not necessarily anti-government, but critical of the government. The arts wow. community there is actually nurtured extremely well. And it's one of the things that all of the musicians I've taken down there have noticed. Um, they support the arts. And even though the musicians aren't making a lot of money, they enable them to play, they enable them to record. Uh, the government does provide a decent amount of money to help them out. And they Unfortunately, don't... they don't have equipment. They always need guitar strings. I always bring those down. Yes, yes. And, you know, things like that. But um, they, it's gotten a lot better for, the, uh, for musicians and artists of all kind there. And what you said earlier, I want to follow up on that. It sounds like they get to... Say something, uh, open up their opinions in the songs a little bit. Yeah, and it's changed a little bit. You know, since Fidel Castro passed the power over to his brother, Raul Castro, things got definitely got a lot looser. And 
some debate was actually encouraged about the economic system in Cuba. Excellent. Not necessarily debate over the one-party government, but at least debate over something other than sports, which used to be the only people that only subject that people could debate publicly. Yeah. yeah. And now, of course, Raúl Castro is gone, and people are hoping maybe it'll become you know even more liberal. We'll wait and see. Right. Yeah. The new guy's relatively young, from a from a leader of a country perspective. Yeah. But Cuba's a bizarre place. I tell people all the time, you need to go see it. It's like bizarro world. Hotel maids make more money than doctors. Anybody who's in tourism and makes tips makes more money than a doctor because a doctor makes $40 a month. He's at the top of the government salary scale. A hotel maid can make in a week what you know a doctor makes in a month. Okay. That's interesting. Cab drivers, hotel maids, uh, waiters, waitresses, prostitutes all make far more money than doctors or baseball announcers or teachers or lawyers or, you know, any other professionals. Something comes to mind, but I won't say it right now. (laughs) (laughs) You're also, this is really beautiful. I I read that you had a big uh, event earlier this year uh, helping uh, homeless children in the Metroplex. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I work with an organization called Focus on Teens, which was founded about four years ago to provide safe places for homeless teens to go before school so they could actually attend school. Uh, It started in Dallas last year, expanded to Fort Worth. I think we're in a total of over 30 schools now, a place where kids can come before school, hang out, do their homework, use computers. Um, They have food and drink for them. They have clothes. They have school supplies, bus passes. Uh, They help them out with anything they need. If they need counseling, that's available to them. And it's a safe place for them to go rather than being under a bridge or in a car or, you know, couch hopping or, you know, whatever they did to get them through the night. And these kids are actually attending schools. They're graduating from school. And I do two events a year to benefit that organization. We do one in Dallas at the Kessler. We just did that around my birthday um, that Shamika Copeland and Seth Walker played. We did one in Fort Worth earlier this year. uh, And uh, Luke Wade and Grady Spencer played that one. And that was the second one we've done over there to fund a Fort Worth branch of the program that started in Dallas. These people do amazing work. Well, with your helping Mm -hmm. them have a place before school and also giving them clothes, that helps... These young kids' ego, right? To feel comfortable now to go into school. And just the fact that somebody cares about them, I think, is really important. You know, I've gone to those drop-in centers and and seen the interaction between the the kids. And it's basically interns who are working for Focus on Teens, you know, and staffing these places. And uh, it's it's tremendous. Well, and the other interesting point you, you mentioned to my wife, homeless teens have a real, they're in a tough spot. Can you expand upon that? Yeah, they can't go to a homeless shelter. If if a teen just shows up at a homeless shelter, they don't let them in. And so they don't really have any place to go. And it's one of the things that hopefully the city of Dallas will will address sometime really soon. Uh, There is is a plan now for at least a community center for homeless teens uh, that's being planned by uh, Chad Hauser at Cafe Momentum and Keith Price, who runs Focus on Teens. They're in the process of raising the money for that. And hopefully, you know, within a year or two, uh, that'll exist physically somewhere in downtown Dallas. Right. I'm going to jump back to music on a local front. What what uh, what music do you have in your car right now? Of the local bands, um, I just got the new Northern National record. Okay. Uh, emailed over to me yesterday. I don't even think it's out yet. Um, big fan of theirs. Um, 
I really like Vanessa Peters a lot. She's yes. she's a friend of mine, a wonderful singer. I've been listening to her quite a bit. She's coming to play at Cafe Momentum in a couple of months. Okay. Uh, in June, uh, Cassie Holt is coming, another local singer-songwriter who's great. I've been listening a lot to Ginny Mack. She played at uh, Cafe Momentum in January, I think. Yeah. I've been catching up on a lot of her stuff. But I'm a big fan of Calhoun. Okay. Um, big fan of Telegraph Canyon. Okay. Um, Oil Boom, who I understand is in the process of breaking up, unfortunately. Grady Spencer. Yeah. I think he's one of the more underrated local performers. And Salim Nerala and, yeah. and all of his friends and all of the sort of guys, Trey Johnson and, and all of those guys. They're, they're, all, they're all fabulous. Yeah, I love Trey and yeah, Paul Williams and et cetera, all their artists. Yeah, v- Vandaliers and et cetera. You are clearly a local music fan, which is really cool. You're a spokesman for, for the music scene here. Yeah, well, I, I try to be. You know, I try to make people aware of how great you know, the local talent is because people just don't, people just don't know. And if they don't already listen to KXT or religiously read the observer for the one or two stories a week that are in there, you know, how would they even know? Yeah. Wow. So I try and spread a little of it in, uh, in the sports world. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to have one ADD moment. I'm going to jump back. You mentioned Ruben Sierra. And uh, I just got to say that I fell in love with that guy because, to me, he reminded me of my baseball hero growing up, which was Roberto Clemente. Uh-huh. I just thought their swing And, was well, that's who he patterned himself after. He wore the number 21 after Clemente, you know, from Puerto Rico. And, uh, yeah, you couldn't have a better idol than that. Yeah. And then it brings to mind also Al Oliver. I was, well, he wasn't here very long, but when he was here, what blew me away— it, to me, maybe you, there's somebody out there like that now, but he was the most amazing uh, change-up hitter I ever saw in my life. Couldn't fool him with an off-speed pitch. And it's funny, he used to say that I hit more atom balls than anyone else, which is balls hit right at him. And <laughs> now we have a way of quantifying that. There's stats for all of that stuff. You know the average exit velocity of every hitter. Um, and specifically, Al Oliver would know whether or not that's true. Wow. Back in his day, he was just uh, supposing. The Rangers are going through a little change right now. Who, who are the rising stars that you think we need to keep our eyes on? Well, the rising stars at this point are probably still in the minors. Uh, the Rangers don't oh, okay. really have their best prospects ready to go. Okay. Um, but we're getting a chance to see Ronald Guzman play regularly at first, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa playing regularly at third and at second. Uh, those guys have been really impressive, uh, and they weren't really among the highly touted prospects that you read about in the national press. You know, with, the Rangers have a very young team. They have already this year, I believe, had seven players of 25 or younger in their lineup eight times this year, and no other team has wow. had that once. Oh, wow. They have the third youngest everyday lineup in the major leagues. Wow. So even though this year hasn't gone so well, and you know it would take really a miracle at this point for the Rangers to have a winning season, um, you know, there's hope for the future. And this is the way you have to do right. it. You know, you've got to absorb a year or two of right. losses. Look what the Astros did. I mean, they lost well over 100 games for oh, a couple it? of years yeah. in order to let their young players develop. And, you know, the Rangers aren't saying that that's the mode they're in right now. But, you know, based on who's playing, you know, it's, it's kind of clear that we're, we're pretty close to that point. Yeah, and uh, but that also give me the thought that when the new ballpark opens up, 
we should be very competitive again. I think so, and it's all going to time out well, I think, for the prospects they have now. That's about the time they should be ready, and that's about the time the young guys here and now have enough seasoning to probably be coming into their prime. Right. Well, Eric, uh, this has been a real treat. It's been fantastic to meet with you, talk to you about the Rangers, but especially about music. And Muddy, he's really enjoyed your visit. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. I've got a new best friend. Yeah, I think he wants to go with you to the ballpark right now. But any closing thoughts on the, where we're going to music in the Dallas area and, and your, your thoughts on that arena? Well, I just hope people appreciate what we have, you know, that we have these incredible venues and that people take advantage of them and support them. And support local music any way they can, and the best way is by going and seeing them. You know, that's how, that's how the artists make their money these days. It's hard for them to make money off recordings now, you know, with streaming and not selling CDs. But go to shows, buy CDs, right. listen to KXT, be a member of KXT, yes. support that radio station, make sure that uh, we still have it years from now. And, uh, and experiment. You know, I'm open to anything. You know, people say, what kind of music do you like? And I always say, I like everything. Yeah. And, um, you know, I want to try everything and, you know, keep an open mind about it. I love it. Eric, thank you so much. I know you got to head, head to the ballpark to get ready for tonight's game. So, Maureen, thank you for lining this up. This is fantastic. And we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks. It was great fun. Good. Excellent. Bye. When listening to music, Dogger and Muddy recommend turning the volume up to 11. Till next time, adios. I cannot feel or speak. Punches underwater. Drifting in the open sea. Or is this a dream?